Just a couple things before we start the episode. The design contest is now open for submissions. Submissions are due April 21st, so you can go check that out at theboardgameworkshop.com. And if you're listening to this soon after it releases, I'll be at Unpub. So if you're around, stop by, play some games, say hi. So this is episode three in the Elegant Game Design series. This one is dealing with physical design. If you're interested in the other two episodes released so far about graphic design and theme and illustration, you can go back to episode 56 and 58 and check those out. And on to the show. Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. I am here with Kathleen Mercury, Sen Fung Lim, and Catherine Stipple. And we are going to talk about physical design and how it relates to making elegant games. Everyone, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. This is great. Uh, so why don't we start with just quick introductions. Sen, why don't we start with you? Uh, sure. My name is Sen Fung Lim. I'm a board game designer from London, Ontario, Canada, probably best known for games like Junk Art and Akrotiri. I'm a psychology professor by day and a game designer by night. And Catherine. I'm Catherine Stipple. I uh, do game design. I'm from Long Island, New York, and I'm currently in school for biomedical engineering, which has absolutely nothing to do with board game design. And Kathleen. My name is Kathleen Mercury. I teach game design to gifted middle school students, and I also have some games in uh, development and production at uh, various studios. Nothing out yet, but my first one is going on Kickstarter in August of 2019, and I am so excited. Cool. That is getting close. Yes. Okay, so let's start talking about physical design. Would anybody be interested in trying a definition of physical design? I mean, I can read the definition. (laughs) no uh sure i'll I'll, I'll give it a go let's 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 give this a go um so physical design is using the components that we have available to us in our little arsenal of components to streamline gameplay uh to help us make a more elegant game to transfer rules to the players uh increase retention and learnability by using the actual physical nature of the componentry not the words on it and the text on it but other parts of it. That is a perfect definition. So one of the things we talked about a bit in the graphic design episode um, was a couple of different things that kind of slipped into physical design. One example that I think I brought up in the article too was the player boards in Scythe, how they have specifically shaped and sized cutouts for the pieces that go in them so that no other piece would fit in there. So you don't have to look at the rules. You don't have to figure out the setup. It's just, if it fits, it goes there. I think that's that's just a really nice addition, although it was kind of a really expensive way to do it, Jamie was saying. I think something that's really important when it comes to games, especially games with you know a high level of complexity, it's so incredibly important that the design of the game really helps to close that gap between sort of our own preconceived notions and then what the game is actually trying to do so that when you're playing a game and if it makes intuitive sense in terms of what goes where then it just enables the player to you know play the game more smoothly you know games are simulations and if the board can help us to really become immersed in that simulation then we're able to play it better for example i played gaia project a couple times over the New Year's holiday. And there just were a lot of things symbolically with it that for me were frustrating in terms of understanding what they meant and how they meant and when they, you know, you know, took, when they took place. So the game design was really clean. But when it, for the most part, I mean, some fun colors, but that's okay. The color part didn't bother me. But when it came to so many different types of symbols, you know, it, the game definitely favored players who either could learn them really quickly or also who had played the game multiple times and then they were a helpful reference. But they weren't something that I would say for the new player were easier intuitively grasped right away. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, one of the things we talk about in educational psychology and education in general uh, is a term called affordances. Um, and you'll see that on, well, everybody's encountered this, a door that has a push handle that you actually 
pull to open, you know, those types of doors uh, that you walk into, you go, oh, why am I having, why can't I get out this door? It says you push, but it doesn't actually say that you push. It just has a handle on it that looks like you should push it, but really it's a pull door. Um, and when you have a good solid design, you shouldn't have to guess. It will be the right thing to do every time because uh, the designers have thought about how do 99% of the people interact with this physical thing uh, and that should be the right way um, and it kind of goes sometimes in the opposite way uh, as in I design something and I watch how people play with it and I say okay I guess that's the way it's going to be played with as opposed to uh, me having a preconceived notion physically what they're going to do with it uh, and I do, I do have that, of course, and I hope they do that. But if they don't do that, sometimes I've actually changed whole designs based on what people do with cards, uh, especially cards. For some reason, people play with cards and they splay them and they hold them in different ways. And so um, when we talk about affordances in design and especially physical design of componentry, um, a lot of things with how you splay and hold cards is, is definitely part of that elegance uh, of physical design. And I, I think there's a lot of those types of subtle things that bridge the gap between uh, you know, graphic design, user interface, and user experience. Uh, but then there's definitely some ones that are physical. Like dice, you just want to roll them. And so if there's ever a dice placement game where you're not rolling them, a lot of people don't, you know, they, they take a, a few seconds to kind of switch their head around from rolling dice to, oh, I'm just placing it and I can never roll that die. Or they mess up the game. Right. Exactly. And so it's those sort of affordances. And um, like I said, a lot of times I'll, I'll kind of listen to the game and the, and the testers and say, okay, how do you want to play this game? When I throw these components in front of you, what do you do with them? And if you're doing something that is contrary to what I thought you should be doing it, with it, maybe I'm wrong, right? Because uh, sometimes the most intuitive way is the way that everybody wants to do that and going counter to that makes the game harder to learn and that's in effect less elegant well i was thinking back to engineering you know when they talk about like the simplest most elegant solution you know you're talking about elegance in that place as hitting that you know that sort of sweet spot you know when when it comes to a design and one thing that you know in, in terms of trying to figure out like what is the best way to represent what players you know are going to do or what they need to do where they need to do it you know the two things that i've done when it comes to envisioning that or working through that is one like sen said and this is what made it sparked it is listening to the game being played not necessarily playing or watching the game being played and so having that complete non-visual experience can give you a, just a different way to see and process it because you're not taking what you've already seen in the board and thinking this is the way it has to be but you're you know approaching it from a this is what it should be and the other was an idea that jay little who was with fantasy flight he did uh star wars x-wing miniatures game and one thing that he said was if a game is designed intuitively well enough you should be able to open the lid and within 10 minutes you know, kind of come up with a, like a rough set of rules on how you're supposed to play the game. And I think if a game can reach that in terms of its design, in terms of players having some ability to guess what they should be doing in the game, then that's something that's kind of hitting that sweet sort of elegant spot. I can't remember where I heard it. It was on a podcast probably within the last month, but someone's talking about in other industries, if your product needs rules, it's already failed. Like there are so many products that have to be designed. No one's going to read the instructions. No one's going to figure out how their fan works. You see it, you look at the shapes, maybe there's a word on it or two and you have to know how it works. Oh, that's exactly how it is in a lot of like industrial design. Uh, but Catherine's in engineering and so maybe she can tell us a little bit more about actually engineering a, a thing. Well, what are the some things you did for Nyctophobia? Like you, you physically crafted the thing by hand for the first prototypes, right? Yeah, I drilled it out of um, a block of wood. So like the, because players have to feel the board and they also have to feel the pieces. So what do you have to do to make sure things were different enough that they could differentiate without seeing it all? Because the each of the player pieces has a different kind of symbol on it, right? Yeah, I think one of the uh, one of the cool things that I did with the tree design, just going off of that though. Um, is my original trees, they were just um, short squares, so with a peg on them. So when you 
looked at it, it didn't look nor did it feel like a tree. So as I increased the iterations, I made it both more look like a tree and by uh, the looking like the three tree on the 3D aspect, you could feel that. And it was both simple to feel because um, like uh, back to the player pieces, I had originally one of the player pieces had five small holes drilled on the top like a pip of a die. But uh, the holes were too close and too shallow that players couldn't feel it. So while you could see as uh, the one visual player that that was which piece it was, players couldn't. So that posed an interesting design as I can see what it is, but the people who need to know need to feel it and you can't. So I had to redesign that top to be something different that could be distinguishable. Yeah, feeling is not nearly as accurate as seeing in most instances. Yeah. Well, one thing that um, this reminds me, because, um, and Catherine, I don't know if you remember, but we did meet at Gen Con. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I was super excited to meet you, and uh, especially with the uh, your game and how young you are, mm-hmm. and that you're putting that you've put that out there, and it's such a you know amazing, cool, out of the box, unconventional sort of game. I was so it's such a great idea, and I've had so much fun playing it. Well, thank you. Um, and the game that I've got coming out is uh, a dexterity game, mm-hmm. and obviously. Um, Sen is very well known for junk art. Mm-hmm. And yep. I think one thing that when it comes to elegant design, most people probably wouldn't think of dexterity games as mm. being, you know, and, and elegance going together. Yeah. But my game is like the one I have with Colossal coming out is a dexterity game. And the thing is you have to be so perfect and precise with your components. Also, while kind of thinking down the road towards manufacturing. Mm. And so what is that spot between what the game needs to be, what it can be, what are the resources you're using, what, how are they going to be manufactured? What are the manufacturing costs? And so, you know, for game design, you know, ele- you know, elegant design being the simple best solution, that means sometimes you have to take things out of the game, even if you really love them, mm. even if you think it's an important part of the narrative, it's an important part of the gameplay. But to make the game elegant in of itself in dexterity games, you really have to get the components so incredibly precise, much so more so than so many other games. Sen, what was your experience with junk art on this? Do, do you have a what's your what's your uh, opinion on this? Uh, well, with junk art, we had to take a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of pieces. There's 15 um, unique pieces. Uh, per color in junk art and trust me there were a lot more when it started there were like 30 odd pieces and I did exactly the same thing that Catherine did I took uh, wood and I cut it into weird shapes and I drilled holes in them and I routed slots into them and all that kind of stuff and at the end of it it's really this type of thing where they there's a lot more toy factor i think in some of the dexterity games that we have coming out which is great um but they have to tell the story right each piece tells a story of what can i possibly do with this what am i trying to do with this uh and how can i use this within the boundaries of the rules of the game um and so in a game like nyctophobia where you're feeling around yeah, I mean, the the shape of the pieces and the ones with the cross indent with the circle indent versus the pointedness of the tree, that's super important. And in junk art, what was important for us is the weight because it's a stacking game uh, and the slope. And then some of the pieces have slots and holes where different pieces can fit through. And there's that kind of playful experimentation that people do when they play junk art where they go and they just stack things at first and then in the second game they're like let's see I, I'm, I'm comfortable with stacking let's see what I can do next and they start slotting uh, skinny pieces and sliding them into the slots and they're remarkable uh, they remark you know when they see it like oh this fits here that's amazing now I can do this and, and so I like 
that each of the pieces in Junkrat has like a purpose and a story that it kind of tells within the narrative of the game. Um, like I can use this to do this thing. Uh, and as I learn more about the piece, I can use it to do different things. And there's a little bit of elegance in there because there's no rules that ever say you can slot this piece together or you can stick it through the hole or this piece doesn't actually fit in this other piece, though it looks like it will. And I think that's really interesting um, in terms of elegance because there's a ton of unwritten rules that you only learn through looking at the piece, playing with the piece, experimenting with the piece, and trying to actually play the game. And through repeated plays, you kind of get to know what piece does what, which is, I guess, kind of what Kathleen was talking about <laughs> with the iconography and Gaia product, except this is a little more kinetic and hands-on. Um, and so the physicality of it actually matters uh, a lot. Uh, and so I like that about physical design. And Kathleen's game has this dragon that slides down this rod. And I, I think that's going to be really fascinating to see how people use that rod in the, the cheese wheel. It's not really a cheese the wheel. Cheese wheel. <laughs> it's not really a cheese wheel, but we call it the cheese wheel um, differently than maybe what Kathleen had thought it should be. And I think that's going to be really cool to see. I'm always fascinated to see how people build with the junk art pieces uh, because it, it is sort of a, you know, just a, a, bag of blocks right so or a box of blocks really a box of very weird blocks mm -hmm. well um well yeah that was <laughs> uh i well it, it'll be a giant boulder officially but unofficially to me it will always be a giant cheese wheel that is huge oh it's the cheese wheel it's definitely a cheese wheel um yeah no the game has uh, four different types of dexterity actions and if i can come up with more that work then it'll have five but um i mean but one thing too especially that i love about Catherine's game is that it's so striking to look at even though for the vast majority of gameplay you know, three out of the four, or at least all but one of the, the everybody but the bad guy is, um, you know, they can't see everything, but just like the stark black board and these ghostly white sort of, you know, like the tree pieces and all of that. And so what I love about it too, from a game is it's something that because it's so bold, anybody walking around is immediately drawn to it as far as like, you know, cause it's so different, you know, like, whoa, what is that? I and mean, they see the people with the glasses on and everything, but even from, you know, they could have made everything crazy colors or, you know, it could have been 1980s, three neon. I mean, who knows? You can go in all kinds of different directions. Well, it is Pandasaurus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is, but it's got such a like starkness to it that really, really kind of even from the look of it can kind of evoke that, you know, ghostly moonlit forest night that immediately puts you kind of into the mindset of where you are in the game. And I think that's such a, that was such a great choice because the white pieces also because they stand out so much you can really see what's what and so you know at the end of the game when you're like everybody like rips off their glasses because they want to see what the board looks like mm -hmm. and even oh, yeah. though it's just a few little pieces it makes total sense for players they're like oh my gosh i didn't realize this was here and this was here and all that well if there's any more pieces it'd be so overwhelming <laughs> yeah right but it's, I think for me, it really hits that, that um, it, it hits the right spot. Yeah. An interesting thing about um, the black and white um, or the colors of Nyctophobia is my original wooden version, I had um, mocked up to be like green and forest colors. And then um, all the player tops were double coated with the texture and the color. And we would have people come over to play to play test and pick up the pawn based on the color and then would like fight over like I want the green pawn and I'm like you're not going to see your piece it doesn't <laughs> matter what color you're playing as people love their colors yeah they were focused more on this visual thing that they weren't going to care about like they remember I'm the green player but then they put on their glasses and they can't remember physically I'm supposed to be looking for what type of texture so it's an interesting thing that we took away all those colors because they didn't really have a uh, tactile purpose. Well, that's a great thing about physical design. You really can control your audience and force them into the direction you want them to go by making things you don't want them to do impossible. So, Senna, I was going to ask, when you're talking about junk art, did you ever think about friction for the pieces, or was that not really something you had control over because you were just going with painted wood? Oh, no, no, def definitely there was... Um... 
there's considerations for that, which is why the the actual plastic. If you've ever seen the plastic version, the plastic version is textured so that it doesn't slip because the plastic has a much lower coefficient of friction than the wood grain of uh, just you know whatever wood we're using. Uh, the paint definitely does make it slicker. It has like a matte kind of finish on it instead of a gloss though uh, to reduce that friction um, oh sorry to well reduce the slipperiness so to increase the friction um, but the the idea of the mass and the friction and all that stuff kind of holding it together there are definitely considerations with that um, and we tried a whole lot of different types of sizes of things um, the other thing you'll notice about the plastic pieces is that they're I think they're like 15% smaller and, and actually the pieces no actually they're no they're not they're this the, well let me think maybe they are but the the pieces in junk art the real junk art are well the wooden version are 15% smaller than my original pieces and they couldn't be made any smaller otherwise it wouldn't actually um, they wouldn't actually stand up the same way. Uh, so there is a lot of physics that are involved with stacking games. Uh, and so at certain points, you know, moving a, a one gram thing from here to there doesn't make any difference to a tower, but it has to be of a certain weight and certain height and uh, different, you know, balance points and centers of gravity. So there, there is something about a lot of those pieces that we did craft them and construct them very, very intentionally. Um, and so they did start out as random pieces uh, that I cut out or bought from, uh, you know, Michael's uh, wood crafting stores and modeling kits. Uh, but we went through a process by which we played with them all. And then we kind of said, okay, from these 50 odd pieces, what are the best 40? And then from these 40, what are the best 30? And we played enough of it that the ones that we have in the game at the end were the best pieces for the purposes that we wanted to do um, you know so you don't have a lot of pieces that are exactly the same or similar in size and weight in dimensions um, in you know all those types of things it's not like seven different types of cylinders because that wouldn't be much fun uh, and so we have to we had to really curate the contents of that set in order to make it something that was fun challenging, uh, interesting to play with, but also easy to learn and remember what each piece does um, just by playing with it. So, yeah. Well, and it's funny because, you know, and for my game, it's a very straightforward narrative story. You're a dragon mad at all of these humans who have, you know, trampled your rights and authority, autonomy, excuse me, and you're just basically going to burn them and their village to the ground. And that's basically what you spend <laughs> your time doing. And it's great. Um, so it's really funny, though, because, you know, working with the limitations of the materials and then how you take those unexpected problems that come up when playtesting, like Sen said, like what will happen when people use these components differently than I expect? It's going to happen. The game has a huge sandbox kind of quality to it. Um, and I'm excited about that. I think that's really great and really fun that, you know, people will be able to come up with their own sorts of adventures and all that. Um, but then how to solve problems when that come from specifically working with materials in a way that makes sense to the game narratively, thematically, mechanically. I mean, one thing that was happening was if a little meeple was caught flat up against the side of the mountainside, it was next to impossible to knock it down. And so we tried different things. And finally, it's like, wait a minute, if this person just got like thrown up and slammed up against a mountainside, like, can we maybe just consider that they're taking out at that point, <laughs> you know, because that would seem it. And so in some ways, it was the simpler answer to a problem that was kind of a breakable part of the game. And then by just coming up with that one simple elegant solution, you know, we'll just consider them smashed up against a rock. All right, take the body out. Then the game, you know, that that problem was solved, you know, onto the next one. And so you definitely have to, it, you know, the, the most fun and most challenging part is being innovative, like as you're in something that you're just neck deep in and have been in. I mean, I created this game, I think, eight years ago, seven years ago is when it first started as pigeons of all things. And so, you know, especially having to like break away from 
what you thought it would be or should be or has to be into what does it need to be and that's one thing that i love about this is when you have those moments when you break away from you know that kind of like nope this is what it is to wait a minute there's this whole other avenue here that to me is so incredibly rewarding because it means that you know, I'm letting the game or the whatever, I don't want to be too like foo-foo about it, but nevertheless, you're making it what it needs to be. And that just feels so good when you get it right, because it doesn't always happen easily. Going off of that and what um, Sen said, um, one of the biggest problems I had with my wooden prototype of nyctophobia is that the tree pegs were circle because you can't um, in order to drill the hole, it has to be circular. And the problem with that is when players were playing constantly, the trees, because it's only on one peg, so the trees would constantly be spinning around instead of staying between where it's supposed to go. So instead of playing as like teenagers in the woods, they're playing like giants knocking over the trees and everything. And that was based because of my limitation in working with the wood. So I tried like drilling grooves to keep them in, but that just got in the way of player movement, moving from hole to hole. So when I finally moved it from plastic, I was like, oh, I can now make square holes. So like my original design was good. It just was my medium that I was working in. My physical medium was having issues with what was supposed to be going on. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things about dexterity games, which I haven't actually built one yet, but I had an idea for one. And they're just so incredibly complex to prototype because you have to get the physics right, the weight right, the size right. You basically have to do a full production copy to test the things. Yeah, it's really good that I learned how to uh, do 3D CAD because then I could print out the plastic in something similar that would have been produced rather than wood which definitely was not going to be end up being produced so how many different versions did you end up making i did one out of a sheet of cardboard i had two wooden ones and then um two different uh 3d printed ones that does sound like a lot of work (laughs) yeah oh yeah um uh my mine's gone from big blocks of wood to um, cardboard shells, cardboard punch box, um, punch board uh, buildings, um, even like the surrounding parts of the mountain um, right now are wood. But one of our biggest issues is coming up with a, a workable prototype, a manufacturable prototype. Um, and it's funny though, too, because I mean, I've shown this game to a number of people and I, over the years got a great response, but manufacturing was the biggest issue. But I mean, manufacturing has come a long way, so that's cool. But like one thing that you're saying, um, that Catherine was saying about, you know, 3D printing, I mean, how cool would it be you know, especially for a game like what we're doing or for really any game, you know, having libraries of, you know, things people can 3D print to supplement the game, you know, where you can create your own game on demand using 3D printers, creating specific components, you know, you know, creating, you know, specific scenarios that center on components. And that's only if people want them or that they want to print them when they want to play them. And I think that's such a you know, amazing aspect of this, the affordability of this technology that can make, you know, just this game design go beyond where people would come up with their own, you know, player boards or maps for certain games to, you know, there's no more restriction on that as far as the components go. And I think that's so cool. It makes me think of uh, Fireball Island and how their prototype was so costly and complex that they just had the one for a while that they had to tour around the country instead of sending out previews to people. Is that sitting in your house still, Kathleen? Well, uh, yes, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, J.R. Honeycutt, who did um, the development on uh, on Fireball Island, lives with us <laughs> on my third floor. And the tour. He was the one that took it on tour. Yes, yes. He was the one that took it on tour. So we have uh, yeah, a good number of Fireball Island copies and everything in the house, which is cool, you know, because especially then, I mean, I knew him and we were friendly. And so to have this whole other experience too, in talking about the game and Noah Edelman, who's with Game Trace, who's here in St. Louis, who did, um, you know, a lot of the molds for it. And he's done other things too. We've talked a lot about, you know, just especially because I'm, you know, I'm always interested in games that are sort of unconventional with the space and playing around with the gaming space that um, we've we've talked a lot about um, just, just the technology and where it's going and what you can do and how much cheaper 
everything is than it used to be for sure. I mean, that's uh, that's somebody who, if you're looking for uh, physical design and elegance and um, you know good affordances in design, Noah Alderman from Game Trays would be somebody you want to talk to. If you're a publisher or even if you're a designer and want to make a game that has these really cool trays that actually add to the game, they don't, they're not just storage, right? They actually help you play the game better, help you store the game, help you clean up the game. But it's actually the game play parts that are so amazing in what Noah has done lately, uh, where um, you know things are sorted better, they are put in an order, they are you know the right size, they're put in the right holes, just like Jamie was talking about. So um, we're, we're coming to a point where modern board gaming, trays are going to be in some games, like a quintessential part of that game. Um, one of the ones that I had played, say, at, I think at Dice Tower Con, was Sweet Mess by Big Kid Games, coming out from Big Kid Games. And without that tray to basically be your control panel and you flip things around on it and you store stuff in it, um, it would have not been a, as fun a game to play or as elegant a game to play. And the thing about the design of the tray is that it tells you where everything can go. There are certain places where that piece, that tile only fits there. So it has to go there. Um, and because it goes there, that means it's linked right next to this other piece, which is of the same type. And so if you know the rules for type a, part A, you know the rules for part B. So a lot of the organizational part of physical design um, and Noah's trays are a key part of that now in a lot of people's games. I think that is really um, sort of the cutting edge of elegance in physical design right now yeah i think especially because it helps with setup anything that gets you playing faster is going to make a game more interesting to people mm -hmm. well yeah um because especially think about terraforming mars which is very popular in my gaming group and you can probably play terraforming mars any day you want people will always be happy to play it and sun's absolutely right the ability to organize and manage your pieces because especially if you <laughs> bump it without it then you're you know unless you absolutely remember what you had it's going to absolutely change the game state and it's okay as humans it's recoverable but if you didn't remember what exactly you had or how much you had and your pieces go everywhere it's really really frustrating so i think sun's absolutely right i mean i played wingspan uh, oh, this yeah. past weekend we got to play it's it's really fun yeah that's what i hear yeah i really really enjoyed it and um yeah it's got uh you know it's it, it's funny because at first i thought and noah's a friend because he's in st louis and i saw the tray for the bird cards and i was like well i don't know if this is totally necessary but you know what it keeps them all organized it's got grooves for them on top so that it's easy to replace you can they raises raises them up off the table so they're easier to see especially in a big in a big game with a lot of stuff like those sorts of things matter more than you think sometimes and while you know there's certainly some games that have some things like that that i mean i, I think you could probably be okay if you didn't have um the tray holding up all the bird cards it really does add something and if it's something that people are going to invest a lot of money in invest a lot of time in you know people are willing to you know upgrade components from plastic coins to metal coins or whatever else to enhance their gaming experience making it so that it's functional as well as attractive is incredibly important mm -hmm. that uh, reminds me of another thing i wanted to bring up how like the the shape the material the size of your pieces can really affect how easy it is to play a game like if you have a piece that you have to move around a lot you don't want to make it a card you want to make it a cube or a meeple or at least a chit so it has some size that you can grab if you have to repeatedly move it if you have to hold a hand of hidden things cards are much better you don't want to have to hold a hand of tokens so what are any games you can think of that do that really well, like the physicalness of their pieces make it much easier to play, or any that have failed at that? Well, even just Splendor, right? So Splendor is a pretty basic game. Um, however, the physicality of those nice poker chip style gems, they could have been just those little acrylic gems. They could have just been tokens. But the size and the weight of them makes you want to play the game, makes you want to touch it. And that's actually the key thing to getting anybody to play a game, like you said before, is get them to touch the pieces. 
If they're touching the pieces, they're playing it already, and that's that's a good thing. I was just playing brass um, the other day at Board Game Base Camp here in Canada, and the iron clays that Roxley designed and put out just make that game that much better. They take it to that other level. And the funny thing is, people say, oh, you know, it's just cosmetic. You don't need them. But you actually kind of do because of the way that Brass's turn order structure is determined. It's a much easier thing to decide or to determine who has spent more money when you have bigger, thicker chits of money to count. Um, and they're not big chits. They're big poker chips. So they're like uh, four mil, five millimeter thick. Um, and they're nice and heavy and they're weighty. Uh, and so there's that quality to it, but there's also really an elegance to design in there uh, where you can stack them, they stay in place, you see them, you count them, and then you know what the play order is. So yeah, I, I think we can do everything we can do to make design elegant. Uh, we should try to do within the you know limitations of cost and things like that that's really the only limitation we have at this point isn't it (laughs) pretty much yeah i mean shipping weight and things like that right which is just cost in the end um let's see what other games have there been lately that have had really good physical components oh okay here's a neat one uh because i i play i get to play a lot of games in various stages so i played philip walker harding's game gizmos um, when it was not Gizmos. Well, it was still Gizmos at the time. I think it was called Gizmos. But it was just cards. There wasn't the um, marble contraption. And the thing is, I've played it with just cards, me and Eric. Uh, played it, and it's like, I don't know, Eric. I'm not sure why you're signing this game. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get it. Um, the game was okay, but I didn't, didn't like it. Um, and he said, okay, you just wait and you'll see. Um, because he already had in his mind spinning up, we're going to do something cool and toyetic with the energy system, which in when I played was just cards. Uh, it was just a deck of cards that you, you know, you get uh, this type of energy or that type of energy. Uh, and when they changed it to the marble run, then it became this thing that has much more kinetics to it, much more uh, toyetic factor. Um, you know, you're reaching, you're grabbing, you're putting your hand in a bin and, you know, randomly drawing. And so while the engine building part is largely the same as when I played it, the picking and taking of the energy marbles, what they are now, uh, increased, you know, my satisfaction with the game, you know, fairly significantly. Um, I'm not sure why I was so enthralled by it much more than a deck of cards. I think it's because I can see some of the some of the ones coming down. So I know what's coming down next. Maybe that's what it was. And so that was interesting to me that just that change in physical design changed my appreciation of the game. Um, and probably did a good job in selling the game too because it has um, that big thing that a lot of people are looking for now as publishers is table presence. Um, so a, a lot of times, if you talk to Eric Lang, um, which I do on a very regular basis, so if we talk to Eric Lang, it, he would tell you that Simon's uh, model is we want a game that as soon as you look at it, not only do you say, wow, I want to play it, you say, wow, I want to play it, and I know how to play it just by looking at it because the physical design is so intuitive. And so that's... That's the ultimate goal. Right. That speaks to that elegance uh, that we're looking for in this. And so, like I said, when it was just two decks of cards, not as elegant, Gizmos. Now that it has that toy factor to it, it's like, oh, I see the appeal much more than I did when I was playing with just cards. Well, right now it's the first week of the semester and I'm introducing my seventh grade students to this world of games. And and more kids, as time has gone on, come in with some experience, but for a lot of them, they haven't played any type of hobby game whatsoever. And um, I, I, the first week I have them play short games that they can basically in one class period, open the box, read through the world rules, understand them for the most part and start to play them. And the game that really catches them off guard as far as like what a game could be is get bit from Mayday games, because it's one where you've got little, uh, little 
plastic figures who are trying to get away from a shark. And if you get bitten by the shark, you pull off an arm. Um, well, you pull off, there's two arms and two legs. And so when your character um, over the play of the game has lost both arms and both legs, you're out of the game. And they are just so surprised by that. That just absolutely, you know, they just think that's the coolest thing. So many of them, when they're writing about the games afterwards, is that's one of the things that, that they zero right in on. Not necessarily... I mean, they like the card play and how you can, you know, try to track the cards and what people are doing. They like the card, the gameplay itself. But just the fact that in a game about losing limbs, you literally lose limbs. And to me, that's almost as elegant as you can get. But I would say my favorite game lately, too, as far as uh, the design goes and what you do is uh, catch the moon where you've got little ladders and you're trying to build a structure out of ladders to get uh, to the moon. And there's, it's very simple in terms of, you know, what your choices are going to be on a die and rolling them and placing them. But it's got just a few different shapes of ladders and, and the way that you kind of balance them and play them. I mean, it gives you tension, you know, there's moments of like, Oh no. And then there's moments where you're just like, yes, I did it. You know, it's got this great sort of, you know, feel to the game as you play it. And eventually, you know, it comes crashing down and you get tears in the clouds and all that or from the cloud and not the clown it's also a different song and uh and it's great but it's got it's just so simple in what it is but for the kind of gameplay experience it gives you it's a really amazing trade-off that they've managed to make happen yeah i think i mean talking about physical design we've gone over dexterity games a lot but i think they're very emblematic of the physical design like you're saying they have usually very minimal rules and a lot of it is the design just gets across how you play you you look at it from across the room you're like oh i know how to play that and there's almost no teach involved you just open up the pieces and everyone's ready to go which is why they have such great table presence they can sell themselves essentially and they do really well in mass market and also at game conventions mm-hmm. like like battling tops right kathleen yeah, I, I have a little bit of experience with battling tops. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, because <laughs> I wanted a geek way to the West. And then when I went down to BGG uh, for their battling tops, I lost in the finals to three mimes, actually. It was a, a great hard fought battle. But the fact that in a game that is so luck dependent <laughs> that I nearly won the tournaments at two different conventions was a little bit nutty. Yes. <laughs> it's not as luck dependent as you thought. Oh, it's definitely all skill. That's what I kept yelling at the crowd when they were doing me, I think. Uh, so one other thing I want to bring up, uh, going back to Scythe, because I always go to Scythe, there's so many good things about Scythe when it comes to elegant design. One of the things is some of the pieces are plastic and some of the pieces are wooden, and those have specific rules attached to them. So the plastic pieces can do certain actions and the wooden pieces can do different actions, and it's just a really simple way to separate those so that you can, once someone learns that the plastic pieces do one thing and the wooden pieces do another, it really simplifies the learning and the remembering of those rules because they're very different. Are there any, any other examples you can think of where maybe the materials or the shape of pieces really help get across the rules? I'm thinking. I'll have to think. A bit in, in the opposite. I have um, my pandemic copy that I have. Like some... Like the base set of um, player pawns that I have are wooden, and then the all the expansion pawns are all plastic, and they are slightly differently shaped. So whenever we're playing and mixing up all the rolls, I just find it irking that these pawns are not the same. They have original pandemic and then the newer expansions. Yeah, I guess so. Just, but the contradictory of they're the same piece and they're doing the same thing that they're not yeah. the same. Oh, that would really bother me. I couldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice when it's on purpose. It's bad when it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was playing a game last night um, by uh, Johnny Tell Johnny Hinkle. Um, it's called The Goblin King is Goblin King is Angry. I think that's what it's called. And different unit sizes of of goblins. So you have goblins, hobgoblins, and ogres. And they're all cubes of the same color, but they're different size cubes. So I mean, that just in that, that's just a simple way of saying this big thing is stronger than this small thing. And you know, just instead of having a different cube with a different sticker on it or whatever, just using the physicality of that is a smart way of doing that, I think. Well, I know physical design really isn't just about 
dexterity games, but I think it's expressed so well in dexterity games, which is why I keep coming back to it. Um, but one thing in the game Catacombs by um, Elsewhere Games, or El yeah, um, Catacombs is you're on a dungeon crawl and you've got different types of characters and what's really fun is the types of it's it's mainly flicking discs but it how you flick and what you can flick and how many times things have to be hit is very thematic so for example if you're playing a wizard you can get these little tiny discs these little magic missiles <laughs> that you can flick 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 you know yeah. as part of your action whereas others you know have a much larger disc like you're the bar barbarian and that you do that or if it's the zombie it might take a couple hits in order to take the piece out of the game. And so what I love is they took so these classic dungeon crawl, you know, sort of tropes and distilled them down into a really fun dungeon crawl where you're literally going in and you're actually hitting the things, you're hitting the monsters, you know, but you're doing it by flicking these little components mm -hmm. at it. And I think that's for me, one of the reasons why the game is so successful is they managed to um, really blend like the narrative with the physical components so well. Yeah, that's one of my favorite dungeon crawlers because it actually doesn't crawl. It's not slow at all. Um, and it's funny because that's another Canadian game. So apparently Canadians like um, dexterity games. Uh, they're just down the street from me, in fact. And uh, Well, actually, he just moved. Aaron just moved. But the um, Catacombs is sort of like Crokinole. And Crokinole, the world championship of Crokinole, if you didn't know, is in Woodstock, Ontario, which is about 30 minutes away from me. So apparently Canadians really like dexterity games. So that's why well, we make a lot is of them. a classic Canadian game, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I mean, it's only natural you're going to grow up and make flicking games. Right? <laughs> um, even just a thing like uh, in card orientation, right? So landscape versus portrait. Um, if you play Star Realms, and I think I have like, I don't know, maybe 8,000 games logged of Star <laughs> Realms. I play a lot of Star Realms. Um bases which are semi-permanent they they persist from round to round they are in landscape orientation whereas your ships which are not persistent they go away at the end of a round they are in portrait mode so even just things like that like those types of affordances and classifications by uh, by just a, a way of organizing shape and and it's just a really neat thing to think about oh, how did we do that how do we how do we make this something that people will understand and and understand that they're different uh just by turning a card one way or another i think that's a really neat way of doing things yeah so we're running out of time but i just wanted to get to one more aspect of physical design and that's accessibility so how you make your pieces, what size they are, what weight, what shape can really affect how people can access your game. So any thoughts on how physical design can help accessibility, things to avoid? Well, I would say that you want to try to start with, for me, I started with pretty standard pieces, standard cube sizes, um, discs that I got from other games that had been made um, from, you know, spare resource kits from various uh, game publishers. And by starting with, you know, the meeples that I use are standard size meeples. So starting with standard pieces for me was, I think, a good choice because if everything was really different and unique considering the scale and scope of the game and all the components, you know, that would be something that would just be untenable financially. But because I tried to work with everyday, you know, sort of gaming supplies, that really helped. So I would suggest that if someone was wanting to make some sort of dexterity game, you know, you want it to be, if it's really unusual, novel, different, like Catch the Moon, then have ladders, but only do ladders. <laughs> you know, if you're, for example, junk arts, it's own whole other thing. So I certainly can't speak to that. But otherwise, try to stick with materials that either A, are easy to come by, or B, that you can work with really easily. So Catherine had the ability to create a lot of her prototypes on her own, and that's really important to be able to do because if you can't do that, then you don't have a testable game and you don't have a project that will go very far, um, or at least it will take a long, long time if you're having to constantly source it out. So trying to figure out what you can do to be as self-reliant as possible to making prototypes for me was key. Yeah, for me, I guess it's it's sourcing a lot of parts 
Um, whenever I find anything that's available in the same shape and size in four different colors, I buy all of them that I can ever find in a store. Um, so I have bins and bins. I'm looking at them right now, just of parts and things uh, that are multiple sh multiple colors of the same thing. I actually buy my clothes that way too. I have like three pairs of the same pants. They're just different colors, but I like them and they fit. So there you go. <laughs> um, I just noticed that about myself. That it extends to my clothing. Uh, and, and then in other things like for physicality, um, if you are a crafter, uh, you will enjoy making different types of games like dexterity games. Uh, I love paper crafting, so I make a lot of things out of paper first. Uh, I craft my proof of concept out of paper, then move up to wood or tile or plastic or whatever I'm, I'm making it out of. Uh, one of the things that I've been looking at a lot of lately is slot construction. So like making a 3D shape out of slotted cardboard. Um, and I think there's a lot of stuff you can do with that and still get a product that looks really good. Uh, if you've seen the tree for Everdale, uh, that kind of stuff is really impressive on the table, but honestly doesn't take much effort at all to design or make. But it makes it look good. It actually has a purpose in the game. It's not just a centerpiece that looks nice. And so, and that's not a dexterity game, obviously. Uh, so there's a lot to be said about the physical table presence of games when you can construct things that are off the table or above the table and learning how to manipulate all the substrates and products that you can use that are easy to use like uh, mat board um, that kind of stock of paper and cardboard is it's just in your benefit so give it a try just get your construction gear out like your knives your glue your hot glue um, whatever, and, and try to build things. And if it works, I guarantee you there's somebody out there uh, who, like Katie Cow is an industrial engineer from uh, Champaign, Illinois, who's also a game designer. And she does a lot of my 3D cutting for me, but she's also amazing at doing those types of physical representations. Uh, Josh Jerkson here in Canada, who is with Lynn Vander, Lynn Vander Studio, has got a lot of experience making those 3D constructions out of cardstock, or not cardstock, but you know um chip chipboard and so i think that's uh, you know not underused but you don't have to go with the high cost 3d resin you know models of stuff you can do it for less and still have this really cool thing uh because everybody who sees everdale ever looks at it and goes that's cool that that tree in the middle of the table that's cool yeah, I've noticed that a lot more with people just adding in like constructible pieces like Colt Express has the whole train you make, which yeah. isn't technically necessary for the gameplay, but it, it adds so much to it that that well, is the game. Well, parts of it aren't, but definitely the, the train cars need the two levels. Yeah, but you could have a top and a bottom on a card. Oh, sure. I guess if you wanted to play flat instead of up and There's down. There's a cheap way to do it. Yeah, but it's not representative, it's not representative of, of the movement patterns, yeah. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Um, well, it's funny because I forgot what I was going to say because I just started thinking about um, I just started thinking about Colt Express. Um, and now I remember. So what I was going to say is I think especially when I'm working with my students on game design and I learned so much about game design by watching them and, you know, processing through them is, you know, I rushed a prototype with them as far as, you know, the, the amount of time that I actually give them from when we, um, they first start designing their game, you know, as a concept in full and to when they start play testing. And it used to be three weeks and now I've got it down to like, maybe I'll give them like three or four days to make a rough, unfinished, incomplete um, prototype because when it's too nice and they spend too much time on it, it's precious and they don't want to let it go. They have spent all this time and effort into this game they don't want to let it go. So I would say when you're, if you're wanting to do any type of game like this, don't invest in a very expensive prototype because if it doesn't work, you don't want to be in that position where you're trying to really figure out, wait, I put all this money into this. Should I keep this? So try as much as you can to do it so that it's, you know, fast, ugly, and cheap for sure. And then worry about making it pretty later. Okay. Well, we are just about out of time. So... 
just wanted to give you all a chance if there's anything else just about elegant game design in general that you wanted to bring up before we close the show. Mm, good question. Less is more, really. I, I think there's a lot to be said about that. Um, so simplification and stripping out things from your game to the point where it still has its soul, I think is what you're, you're that's that fine line that you can't cross. Um, but nothing else. Yeah, you know, like take out before you add something, I, I think is a good first piece of advice. If it still has its soul and you've taken something out, you know, that, that can help you make it a more elegant game. Um, I know there's some people out there who are kind of, but I want all this stuff and I like all the things and that's okay then. Maybe your game's not for them. In general though, you know, try to go first, um, you know, streamlined and then see is there is does adding thing add anything to the game right Catherine, anything you want to add i'm very interested to see just how more um physical design is going to be implemented uh further on with uh, the industry with like the technology of 3d printing i'm able to prototype my game at home with all these plastic parts so like the uh, doors are more open to what uh can be achieved with all these games so i'm just very excited to see what people can now come up with with all the tools that um they're being given yeah it's definitely opened up a lot i know julio nazario is with the um game designers in north carolina like all maybe not all but a lot of his game designs he uses the box as a component and he's got a lot of different things he's building like physically like tall things that are very very much like table present but interactive too it's not just a piece to look at yeah he's got he's got some wild designs i've seen a bunch of them they're really interesting um and and they're fun too i mean it's not that they're just art pieces that you look at and function as a game it's like no this is a a good game as well as it has table presence and it's cool to look at and cool to interact with so yeah i think we'll see a lot more from him yeah I mean, for me, I think uh, I think we pretty much covered it as far as um, all of that goes. I would just suggest that if somebody has an idea, you know, get it to the table and it can be fast and ugly and, you know, but you just want to see, do I have something there? And, you know, when it manages to hook people and they have fun with it, you know, uh, then you've hit something. And so uh, make great games, make fun games, make bad games, make them better. Awesome. All right. So let's close this up with some contact info and anything you're working on or going to or coming up that you want people to know about. Let's start from the bottom. Kathleen. Uh, starting from the bottom with Kathleen. The bottom of the <laughs> list I have. That's my favorite thing you said. Um, well, I'm really excited that I'm going with JR and a number of uh, game designers and developers. Uh to uh, Lake of the Ozarks in Missouri this week for a game design and development uh, retreat. I'm super excited. I've got uh, my game for Colossal that I want to get play tested. I've got, I had a game with a different publisher that I took back and I've been reworking. I'm doing that. Um, some other stuff I can't talk about, which is super exciting. And, um, and then a new idea that I have that's super rough and ugly that I'm really nervous about putting out there, but that's how we make something happen. So um, yeah, I just, uh, nothing too, uh, specific, but look for, uh, Dragnarok, August, <laughs> 2019 from Colossal and Kickstarter. Yeah. So if people want to get a hold of me, you can go to my website, KathleenMercury.com, where I put all of my game design teaching resources for free. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Mercury with seven M's. And on BGG, you can find me there as Funk Donut, one word. Cool. And Catherine. So you can find me. Um, on Twitter as at playnictophobia. Uh, right now, my Twitter is covered with Lego, but um, it'll be back those. to board really games nice. later. Oh, thank you. Um, but um, this coming year, uh, I always go to Unpub in March, the unpublished game convention. So I'm looking forward to that uh, as always. And then um, I recently signed a game with Galactic Raptors, so that'll. Uh, 
be on the lookout for that. Awesome. And Sen? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Senfong Lim. I believe that's all one word. S-E-N-F-O-O-N-G-L-I-M. Um, and on Facebook, you can come visit me at Meeple Syrup. That's the show that I do every week, video show. So it's all about game design. If you like game design and want to see my glorious mug, that's where you can find me. Um, in regards to upcoming things, I have a Kickstarter coming out in... Well, I have a bunch. I have a couple Kickstarters in Q1. So... Um, Let's see, what is there? There is Simplicity, which is now Complexity, through Big Kid Games. Uh, and I have Kingdom Rush, A Rift in Time, through Lucky Duck, uh, coming out in Kickstarter for Q1. And then there's many, many, many more. I'm writing for a lot of RPGs now as well, so that's fun. Kathleen and I will be hopefully doing an RPG at some time. I think, Kathleen, is that, a, is that still a thing? What do you think? Oh, sorry, my mute button was on. No, it's definitely still a thing. This uh, winter break was a little bit crazy pants, but I had students play testing ideas for it, and I've got a boatload of ideas, so I'm super yay. excited about it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'm totally excited. Yeah, we're doing it for sure. Okay, good, <laughs> excellent. And then other than that, I, I mean, I've, I've got other things coming out. I just can't talk about them because NDAs and all that silly stuff. But there you go. Fun times. Mm-hmm. Okay, awesome. Thank you all for coming on the show. I would love to have you all back again. <laughs> in well the distant future because this is going to be like four months of content anytime i'm always happy to come on and talk about anything Mm -hmm. thanks for having me thank you that's all for this episode the board game workshop is a member of the indie game report check out their reviews and interviews at the indie thank you to all of our patreon supporters especially our inventor level supporters chris turner alan d eckert brad bachelor and roscoe shop if you'd like to support the show go to patreon.com slash the board game workshop you can follow the show on twitter at the bg workshop and on facebook at the board game workshop and join the show's discord channel to discuss episodes you can get links to all of these and the show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com Thanks for listening. Oh my god, it's like iTunes or something. My friend's computer. What in the world? <laughs> Hold on a second, I'll be right back. But we're recording it. <laughs> I mean, I had to start recording. Okay. <laughs>